Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Coming up on today's show, your ears will be treated to my chat with synth-pop superstar and purveyor of audiovisual extravaganzas, Ariana and the Rose, about her love for Deep Breath, world-renowned light and space artist James Terrell, immersive theater, using Sleep No More as a jumping-off point, and fellow synth-pop superstars Goldfrap. Phew! You're in for a wild and wonderful ride, kids. A quick note on one of the subjects we discuss before I get started. James Terrell has been working on a massive installation called Roden Crater in the Arizona desert for 40-odd years. I wasn't sure if the description that Ariana and I give was clear enough, but it's something that's better seen than explained anyway, so do yourself a favor and Google it while you listen to us talk about it. It's not opening for a few years, but it is going to be insane, so check it out. And while we're on the subject of Roden Crater and also immersive theater, I want to talk a little bit about consuming art in unexpected venues and by non-traditional means. Until relatively recently, and I mean recent, as in the last hundred years or so, art was mostly experienced in a fixed number of places. If you wanted to see a play, you saw it in a theater, and you watched it passively with little to no audience participation. Fine art was predominantly viewed in galleries and museums. Obviously, there are historical examples that buck those stereotypes, but overall, traditional experiences were the norm. And those traditional experiences still dominate. But the trend towards experiential and immersive art has spiked in recent history. As art has become freer and more accessible to a wider range of people, the venues in which it can be found and the means of delivery have changed too. In some cases, the venue has become an integral part of the work itself. Site-specific work can be built entirely around its setting. The place becomes the key to understanding and appreciating the work. When you combine that with other immersion techniques like non-traditional audience placement and audience participation, the artistic world building becomes even richer and more dramatic. But 
Those techniques can be employed with varying results and can appeal to or put off audiences accordingly. You want to build a giant installation in the middle of nowhere in the Arizona desert surrounded by otherworldly beauty and turn it into a vacation destination for tourists? Sign me the fuck up! You want to impose randomly enforced audience participation and intentionally separate people from their friends like you get with some immersive theater experiences? <coughs> Sleep no more. That ain't for me. But those unexpected means of consuming art, whether they're your particular cup of tea or not, inject an extra layer of excitement into proceedings. Even when these experiments fail, they're still striving towards innovation. And that's a goal to which every art form should aspire. And there you have it. Thought complete. Why don't we jump on over to the main event, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Here comes my chat with Ariana and the Rose about James Terrell, Sleep No More, and Goldfrapp. So firstly, why don't we talk about James Terrell? Sure. Well, it's really funny because I've been a, I've been a James Terrell fan for a long time and very f- most famously, I think, in pop culture. James Terrell's reference is now the Hotline Bling video by Drake. <laughs> Uh, and he really ruined it for the rest of us, I think, because yeah. that's straight up like a James Terrell exhibit. Like he just like they just like recreated a James Terrell exhibit in the music video. So for anyone who doesn't know who James Terrell is, watch the Hotline Blake video. Uh, you could also just Google James Terrell. But um, basically, I, honestly, I don't even remember how I came across him. I I just must have heard about him while I was like in school, friends, whatever. And I was just always really fascinated with like light installation art. I think that that's just, it's just really beautiful to me and non-directional lighting the way that it's like this, you see the color and you feel the texture of the light, but you never see the light source. And Mm. I think that that's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's like what a sunset looks like, or, you know, it's, it's that kind of, it's that kind of idea that like light is, uh, tangible. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been in any of his exhibits, it's like, you can't, you never see the light source. You only feel the light, which is so beautiful. And I'm like a sucker, obviously, for that sort of neon, all the like, they're not even neons, they're off colors. Like it's not blue, it's Seneca. Mm-hmm. It's not pink, it's magenta. Like it's all the slightly off versions of things. And that's just always, for whatever reason, been the colors that I like. It's not, I, it wasn't like a decision. I just, my like aesthetic as an artist is just the shit that I like. Yeah. Can I curse on here? Yeah. Oh my God. Yes, please. Um, please do. Great. Perfect. <laughs> curse all the things. Yes. Um, so, so I, I remember very distinctly, I had a boyfriend at the time and I was, he was saying to me like, you should look outside of music. Like I was sort of, I think I was frustrated with my, with my own sort of like self image as a musician. And I felt like it wasn't reflective of what I really wanted. I think a lot of anyone goes through this. That's making something, you make a lot of bad stuff before Mm. you get it right. Mm -hmm. And I was really frustrated and I was Googling things and on my computer and this was going on for a long time. And I came across this whole thing explaining the light and space art movement, which James Terrell was at the center of. Mm -hmm. And it was all of these artists. It wasn't just James Terrell. It was this whole movement. And I did not have the idea for light and space, my show yet. But when I did, I was like, oh, of course it has to be this. And we pull from so much of the art installations and the techniques and just just the whole use of that whole colorway and the kind of approach to art in, in that time is, I think, really been how I approach all of my visuals. Mm-hmm. So it's just really become like a cornerstone. Yeah. 
And I think all that stuff about kind of uh, making the intangible, the ephemeral, tangible. 100%. Um, but also this kind of, you know, a lot of his work involves natural elements as well, mm-hmm. but it's infusing those natural elements into this very kind of otherworldly. Yes. Um, e- even though like the colors, some of the colors feel natural, but they're always very heightened and it feels like something that's not quite real. Yeah. Very saturated. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good, that's actually a really good point. Uh, uh, this, it feels very otherworldly and very futuristic, mm. but also nostalgic at the same time. And that whole kind of galactic world for for me visually is like become such a huge part of my identity as an artist. And to me, it's like someone says, oh, you're, you know, when they come to like a show like Light and Space or they hear my music or whatever, I get those, I get those words back at me a lot. It feels very galactic, otherworldly, futuristic, all that stuff. But really there's properties that make those things, that make something feel that way. And the, like you're saying, the co- the use of color, the way that color is like in the room, but you don't quite know where it's, where it's coming from. It's this idea that it's like, that's what the state of the world, it's like an altered aesthetic of a world mm-hmm. that feels um, like you're on a spaceship or it feels other right and um that's become like a very big thing that i've explored in all of my work in my songs and the sounds i also think i guess in a little bit of like a synesthesia vibe uh my music sounds like that Mm -hmm. like when i look at those colors and i'm in i'm in one of his exhibits or i'm seeing photos of it i'm like oh this is what synths sound like to me whether it's my music or someone else's music like i think Depeche Mode. I mean, they don't, that doesn't quite sound like James Terrell to me because it's like a bit darker, but in general, like lush synths, Mm -hmm. they sound like that kind of light to me. I don't know why. That's just how it, that feels like a very good visual representation of, of my music. So yeah, maybe if I made different music, I wouldn't have, you know, I would have been drawn to a different kind of visual. Right. And it feels to me like something from science fiction that it's like an ancient alien culture that's so advanced that their history is still way beyond what we could ever experience or something. Totally, totally. And combining that kind of futuristic, heightened science fiction stuff with stuff that feels very organic and very like present oh, yeah, in the world. For sure. And I, I don't think that that's um I don't think that that's like a connection I made because I was like special. I think that like that's in a pop culture reference, that's a connection that gets made often. Like if you Mm -hmm. look at Stranger Things and the way Stranger Things is shot Mm -hmm. and the use of light, and there's a lot of, if you look at the lighting on that show, it's very supernatural lighting. There's a lot of colors infused. Even the posters are like high contrast and the soundtrack is all 80 cents. So like that's that's what that is because it's meant to feel it's earth and it's what you know, but it's also meant to feel like something supernatural is happening. So that's, I think that that's just something for whatever reason, from like a style perspective, a pop culture perspective, that's sort of become those those things seem to naturally go together. Yeah, and t- to me, it's also like there's a, some some of the shapes are almost Art Deco. Totally, um, totally, that, and it's like that combined with this neon feeling futurism and like H.R. Geiger or something. Yeah, like yeah, um, all uh, of these things combined, but just like so incredibly beautiful and really peaceful as well. Really peace. That's such a good way to put it too. It's really peaceful. There's no th- there's no hard edges. 
Mm-hmm. So like you don't see where light comes from. You don't see anything getting stuck in a corner. There's no shadowing. That's wild to be in a room where like it's just consistency of one tone. Mm-hmm. And that's that's all obviously done on purpose. But all of his stuff, there's a reason, right? That it's all arches and whatever. It's because the light can travel that way. And when I when I went to make Light and Space this immersive show, I didn't realize that that was why I liked all the James Terrell stuff so much and I was so inspired by it but it really it's an immersive approach to light installation and that's I think why I loved it because I walked in and it was like the light was all around me and I was that he was one of the very first people to really be he was doing experiential work before people had a name for that Mm. which is pretty crazy people would talk about it all the time it's like I'm standing in the middle of the pink light I don't understand why does it feel like that you know we've now we have other names for that because because theater and film and tv have sort of like evolved Mm -hmm. but at the I mean this is crazy to think that this was going on in the 70s it's like 50 years ago yeah it's so wild and also the room uh, at PS1 have you been to that one yeah yes so in those instances where it is like this you know view into the real world Mm -hmm. um for anybody listening who hasn't (laughs) experienced that it's like a room that has an open ceiling that looks out onto the sky so Mm -hmm. it's just sky above you and all around the ceiling there's kind of light leaking out um right around the edges um and it's just this big empty room and the, the experience of being in it is really overwhelming um, and he make he frames the sky. The sky becomes the art. Right. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. And now these shitty LIC real estate developers are encroaching on it. And are they really? I don't know if it's a permanent thing. There was definitely a crane that was like really peeking over so that you could see, uh, you know, it's normally uninterrupted sky. Right. And there's like this crane from a skyscraper just kind of peeking in and he made them close the exhibit until that crane was gone because he's like that it needs to be just the sky sky. wow Um, is it still there yeah oh wow that's so cool yeah yeah that makes sense so that's interesting that he made them close it which means that like he's not even trying to like have a commentary on like if it gets encroached on you know some artists might let the crane be in there so that's like some sort of commentary on the cityscape or whatever. And he's like, no, that's not my point. Yeah. He's yeah. all about color. He's everything is color and texture. So yeah, I've, I, I've always loved it and I've always, and I come back to it and I don't reference, I don't, I feel like when I first really discovered it and I first started making music videos and whatever, I would like stare at images for hours. Mm. I would just like get lost in images and a mood board upon mood board of all these things. And the photography that I had, like if you, if I like were to like line up all of my artwork and press shots and things over the last several years, like I've definitely, it's definitely more referential now. Like I, I've developed like much more variation, but initially, like if you look at the first stuff, it's like, oh, this girl's like obsessed. <laughs> this girl needs to relax. Um, where it was like me on background. We still do like tonal and whatever. My artwork for the last DP that I did was all this like burnt orange color scheme. Right. I was in orange and that was the whole thing. But we had a whole like non-directional lighting artwork sequence that I did with an amazing photographer named Maciek Jacek. And Maciek does not, he's an artist. Like he creates art and it through photograph and because it's so amazing and the aesthetic is so beautiful he's been hired by new york magazine and other artists and Mm. labels but that's not where he started it wasn't like he was a photographer with an aesthetic for hire he's an artist that has such a unique and very like current i think aesthetic that people have said hey well would you come and shoot this or that so Mm. that was cool too to kind of i think that liking James Terrell and coming from that space, I didn't look at photographers who shot other musicians. I just looked at 
photographers who were artists right. and that's been a way that i've like shot things as well yeah so it's real like a, an artist collaboration rather than uh, a photographer who like makes their living shooting cover art right it's like and two different approaches yeah and it makes perfect sense to me because it's like you don't really want to look like another person totally you want to have an idea of you know a concept of your own exactly you want to look like you and you want i mean and, ideally right i mean it's, every artist is different but i always wanted my artwork to be able to sort of feel like there was like the art sort of stood alone that it was a full like it was a holistic concept if i was doing four singles this is the this is the run of the of this ep a lot of people or, or this record or album or whatever I, tons of artists do that where this is this phase this is the theme of this phase and then when you go to start again you do maybe you do a variation of or sometimes people start over sometimes people are like we're gonna we're gonna go all the other direction so yeah that's that's definitely been it's it's a huge influence in my color scape yeah it's it's just totally incredible work have you seen road and crater yeah do you know that kanye west gave like 10 million dollars or yeah, something crazy yeah. and like don't ruin it he's kanye. filmed something for the, the jesus is king campaign there's some short film that he's no made it's going to screen at IMAX cinemas and whatever. James Terrell is probably like, great, give me the money, Kanye. Right. Like, give it. I mean, he's been working on that crater for like 20 years. 45. Is it really? Yeah. So wow. it's like just this insane amount of time and trying to find the funding for it and all of that. But um, yeah, right. He's probably like, okay, give me the just money. Just give you me the money. Whatever, do you can do whatever yeah. you want. <laughs> and he's already, you know, like you said, Drake has uh, made him kind of a hip hop icon anyway. I so. know. I'm like, can you all just back out of James Terrell? <laughs> like, give a pop girl a second. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how am I supposed to compete with Drake and Kanye? Yeah. I mean, again, for me, it's referential. That Potline Bling video is not referential. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. literally, I thought that was kind of crazy. I wonder if they got permission from him. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I Because assume... that's, that feels like intellectual property. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't but... know either. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe he got money for it and was like. Right. Well, they just did. To... I would be surprised if they didn't cover their bases. I mean, it's yeah. not even, you know, it's the same way that like Kim Kardashian wears Versace outfits that are literal. There's um, it's a really funny video of Naomi Campbell talking about Kim Kardashian because literally, and it's art in a way as well, because the 90, you know, 90s fashion was art. Like it was, mm. it's so referential, that whole Versace thing. There's literally images of Naomi Campbell in like five different outfits that Kim has like commissioned to recreate that right. she wears like the exact replica of the outfits. And Naomi Campbell's like, what is happening? Like, <laughs> and you, I mean, again, it's pop culture. Obviously, you're not talking about an artist, but in a lot of ways, fashion is, I mean, for, the, for those designers and those models, mm, that's art. Right. And so someone is literally not even referencing it. It's not like another chainmail dress. It's the exact dress replicated. Yeah. So it's such an interesting world that like, that's, okay like nobody cares that doesn't feel like stealing it's like if you're so blatant about it it's like some sort of it's a you're being i guess if you're being so blatant and so upfront then that somehow makes it okay i'm not sure yeah, it's, it's very odd yeah it's an, an unusual set of circumstances and also with this like kanye thing at Roden crater it's like this project that's been going on for so long and still hasn't been completed it's like not even opening until 2024 mm -hmm. and maybe it's like good publicity for it because it's public art and you oh know, for sure in the middle of the desert and for getting sure. people to come and visit it but 
having it be that the primary image that's going to be burned into everyone's consciousness is of this being a Kanye thing of before it's a t- it becomes a James, anything else. It, well, yeah, and right. I, I'm surprised that James Terrell would would want that, that he would, you know, it would be one thing if it was a James Terrell thing opened and then Kanye came and did something. Right. But yeah, you're right. It's like it will be deemed the same way that Kanye had a release party in Wyoming or whatever and like that mm. whole landscape all that just it weirdly became synonymous with like Kanye artwork right. I'm like does Kanye does Kanye like own Wyoming as an aesthetic now like well, I don't understand what's going on yeah uh, I don't you know it's a funny thing I heard that James Terrell's opening a hotel he's like working on some sort oh, of wow. hotel in collaboration with another really well-known person that I don't remember the name of and it's like he's not the hotel year like or the person that's opening it but the aesthetic of the hotel is James Terrell that's crazy. I have to find the information about it. Yeah. And it was it was like a like 10 year lead time or something crazy. That sounds really cool. I mean, I would go to that. Yeah, seriously. Well, it's like a it'd be like a destination thing. It'd be like the Marfa thing and wherever mm. that is in Texas. You yeah. go just to like see it. Yeah. And sa- same with Road and Crater. It looks like I mean it, it's going to be enormous. It's like a volcanic is crater. Is he lighting the crater? Like what is going on? It's looks like an alien mothership like it's a huge structure so wild. and all of these like weird hallways and staircases and it just looks absolutely phenomenal so wow well i mean i think it's cool that he's still out there making art and pushing boundaries yeah and still yeah. very obviously very relevant there's not there's not someone else that's come in in that in that sort of genre of mm-hmm. art to take to take his place which i think is really interesting yeah. People yeah. are still referencing him. He's still a pop culture sort of purveyor, which yeah. is wild. Yeah. 50 years later. Not bad for uh, old beardy from Qu- an old Quaker guy dude. From, yeah. from wherever he's from. Yeah. yeah. Exact Chris Kringle looking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe we should skip along yes. to subject number two. Okay. Um, so. Sleep No More. Sleep No More, yeah. I'm assuming you've seen it. (laughs) I've seen it. I'm almost reticent, for lack of a better word, to use Sleep No More as my core of it. I use Sleep No More because Sleep No More is the most well-known name. It's the most Mm -hmm. commercially successful example of immersive theater. Mm -hmm. But Sleep No More as a production while was revolutionary and punch drunk the company that created sleep no more has been revolutionary in redefining theater structure in that way Mm -hmm. there are other immersive shows that have like directly influenced me a bit more than sleep no more Mm -hmm. but that being said those shows wouldn't exist had sleep no more not happened right so you have to like give sleep no really it's actually a show called the drowned man Mm -hmm. which was in london again done by punch drunk which punch drunk now does far more than sleep no more they get hired by like nike to go do some event like they're 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 curating experiential work all over the city and really are the best at it like no there's no one that's come in and done it better than them but sleep no more in new york i mean this was 10 years ago 12 years ago that Mm. that really first came to new york i think it was in boston first actually they really like redefined a genre of theater that has like gotten all the way to Broadway in some ways with like the Comet of 1812 and right. you know they're they're trying to push the boundaries as much as they can in mainstream theater also. Yeah. What was the Drowned Man based on? Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm finding out. I'm up. finding out. Right. It's always usually based on a text. Mm-hmm. Because like 
uh, Sleep No More's Macbeth. Right. Sleep No More's Macbeth. There's um, a show in Bushwick called Then She Fell, which is based on Alice in Wonderland, but also more of the story of Lewis Carroll. Maybe it's not really based on anything. It's like... It uh, might just be like a scripted show. Influenced by Greg Buckner's unfinished play, Wojcik? Is that how you pronounce that? But Sleep No More, Sleep No More, the text is pulled from Macbeth, but really their references are far more than that. Like I I know several people that have been in the show and they reference, there's movie scene vignettes. There's, um, oh, what's that movie where it's about the vampires and they do the club scene and the blood, the blood like is on all the sprinklers. Do you know which movie I'm talking about? Uh, Blade, Blade, Blade. Blade, Blade, thank you. Like their their club scene where there's all the strobing and stuff, like that's based on Blade. Like they, they, the way that that show was built was highly visualized and really taken from so many mediums and theater at, up until that point had not done that before as an approach mm-hmm. where it was like we're pulling from like a core text but like blade does really go with Macbeth when you right. think about like theme and mood and whatever so so just that way of thinking about theater and performance, what that company has done for live performance, that has affected me as a performer. That way of looking at and creating and piecing together live performance has been more influential to me than like the show itself. Mm-hmm. Obviously taking over an entire building and you can run through the whole building and this idea that it's every man for themselves and that whole thing and the performers coming in and out that was i think it was revolutionary i mean people people that don't live on the coast to this day like don't really get get it until they see it it feels very odd for people even in la they don't people don't get immersive theater in the same way unless they've literally been to the show just hasn't Mm -hmm. reached hasn't reached sort of past the east coast i think in a lot of ways yeah I would have never gotten the idea to build an immersive show or it changed my approach to my own live concerts, not inside of light and space. It just changed my view on what was possible. It, mm-hmm. it opened my eyes to the fact that like, just the concept of just because it was done this one way before doesn't mean you have to do that. Right. And taking like, it's in some ways it feels like such an obvious thing to say, wait a minute, the audience is always seated passively watching something why does that need to be the way that it is um and i'm sure you know there are other examples i mean i know there have been outdoor theater productions that have you know had maybe a slightly less traditional seating arrangement or whatever but i think this specific kind of thing not only having like a looser narrative structure having the audience following bits of story kind of having to piece things together it's a bit solving a mystery as well yeah Um, totally and combining elements of like traditional theater with performance art and music and this kind of multimedia experience. One, the way that you can like smash that all together now and that not only is there a place for that, not only are performers willing and ready to take that on, but audiences are so interested in that, which is a combination of, in my opinion, sort of a good thing and a bad thing. I think on the one hand with technology and the speed in which we get entertainment at this point, like to your hand, in your phone, Mm. everywhere, you know, like you don't even want to sit through like a 20, you're, I'm annoyed at like a 20 second ad on a Hulu show that I watch now. I'm like, this is ridiculous. So in that way, people's attention spans are so, so small and so in need of like crazy synapses going all the time that this kind of theater where it's a three ring circus doesn't feel overwhelming. 
Maybe yeah. 50, 60 years ago, it would have been too much. People weren't used to having so much coming at them all the time. But now that's how audiences live their life. So it makes sense that a live theater situation would make them want that. In some instances, I'm like a little bit like, I think audiences are so hungry that it's like, as a performer and a producer and a creator, you're like, holy shit. Like I have to, <laughs> I have to deliver so at such a high quality so much at once for someone to really feel like something's different or whatever. So how do you like find a balance of keeping everybody interested, keeping everybody feeling like they don't know what's going to happen, but also having a high quality and a curation and making something feel like there's a through line and a point ha throwing a million things at people that don't aren't connected and don't make sense isn't you're not doing your job either. So right. I think that, yeah, immersive theater in general and sleep no more has been a pioneer of the immersive theater movement and i think you know in the best of it audiences are so smart and so willing to go there with you mm -hmm. if you take care of them if you are doing things at such a like a level that feels connected and safe for them to kind of lose themselves which has been really really cool to see that was a that's been a highlight for me as a person who makes who makes sort of music and live performance to, to feel like an audience like doesn't care about your feelings. So like if you make something that sucks or like that doesn't hold their, their attention, no one's going to come up to you and like explain it. They're just going to, they're just not going to pay attention. Right. So you can see in real time if what you do works because you will watch it work or you will watch it not work. Mm -hmm. It's like a kid in a lot right. of ways, you know, right. like kids don't think about your feelings like that. Mm -hmm. They don't like something. They just go do something else. Right. But I kind of love that. I love it. It's not personal. Yeah. But it like strives you to make better stuff. Right. And I think it is also, even if an audience isn't completely on board the whole time, if they're included, if it's there's some element of participation, even if it's not direct participation, but they feel like they're immersed in what's going on and it's not this passive experience that it's harder to turn off and for sure you're you're still forced to really engage with what you're seeing and like evaluate it instead of like kind of glancing up well you know that that's part of this culture of having everything on netflix or whatever yes. that i am guilty of this myself my husband will uh, tell me off every night for like looking at my phone while we're watching TV Constant. and split attention, too totally. many things going on at the same time and being in an environment where that's not really possible. Like there are a lot of things going on around you, but the performance is all that you can really focus on. Totally. You're not all, you know, there's, there's no room for anything picking else. Picking your phone up. No. Right. Or if you are picking up your phone, this is something I've noticed at our own shows that if someone is picking up their phone, it's to film what's going on. Right. And we make a show that like uh, obviously in a theater show you're not encouraging cell phone use because that would be distracting but us we're a concert so yeah. all we want everybody the way you take in the show the way you share the show we made a, a highly shareable show on the internet mm. and that was important to me that it was like visual tableaus happening like every 30 seconds depending on what room you were in and you're not going to get everyone we probably have like 200 different things that happens in the course of three hours right you might get what 20 of them but that's cool there's five six hundred people at our show right. so if i want 600 people to feel like there is shit going on all the time i have to create that happening in all different places for people to collide into it mm -hmm. rather than telling them to look and every once in a while it's amazing because it's really old school it's really like vaudeville world mm -hmm. because i don't need anything hypothetically if we did it right lights and vibes and 
you know, James Terrell style lighting, all that shit makes it really sexy. But like, if we do it right, I could just have, if I had good performers in a room and good music and it was timed, hypothetically, we should be able to do it with no production value. Right. And you should just be able to feel like this shit's going everywhere. And every once in a while you drop everything. We we always say this, there's nothing, Seth Kirby, who does the production design for Light and Space, who is like so talented, he always says to me, he's like, we only go, you only get to go to black once. <laughs> like you only get the black with the spotlight. You only get to cut everything one time because you use it after that. Right. So like you, we best pick, if you're going to do it, like you pick that one moment. Because hmm. then after, it's like one trick, you get to do that. Right. So I think that like those are really, in a weird way, it obviously feels very much like the future of theater and what and live performance. But in a lot of ways, it's actually like really old school. Mm-hmm. It's like really classic. And, and obviously theater is getting pushed in different ways in general, using technology and all that, which is happening mm-hmm. in more proscenium style theater. I'm trying to think of a good example. Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, mm-hmm. which was right. on Broadway. I saw it on the West End, like right when it started. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that show and my mind was blown at the use of projection and projection mapping. And this, have you seen the show? Uh, no, but I've had it. I've had it described to me. Does that it's, count? <laughs> it's, no, but it's a kind of show you describe. Like yeah. if you see it. And the, so the show is about a boy that um, is struggles with disabilities. Mm. And what's amazing about it is that the way that the design of the show is, is that it's all the way that the world is experienced through his eyes and ears. Right. So the sound design is like really harsh and like really sudden. And whereas, cause for him, you know, that that's how the world happens for him. Like if there's a loud screech, it's not just a loud screech. It's really loud and it feels very sudden. And so the beginning of the play, you're really startled. It's really unnerving, but then you're in it for an hour and you get used to it. Yeah. And the use of projection mapping and the way they do it, like it was, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah. So I think it's cool that it's a time in live performance that both things are existing and coexisting and intersecting. And yeah, I'm really, ins- I've been really inspired by theater on the whole. Like mm. I come back to theater in general when I'm feeling like I don't know what to do as a musician, as an artist, I go to see, I go to see shows. Yeah. What about uh, other musicians who inspire you? For um, example, uh, Goldfrapp. Goldfrapp. Was that a smooth segue? That was such a good transition. Yes. Wow. You did so good. (sighs) Patting myself on the back. Great. That was really well done. Yeah. Um, I think, again, I think Goldfrapp was someone who was exploring a lot of these themes in her own work Mm -hmm. in like the early 2000s. She like did a weird Glastonbury set with like a horse's tail on her bed and like was doing all this weird avant-garde shit. She was doing FKA Twigs before FKA Twigs was born. (laughs) Um, but with like sick synth pop music infused with the blues I was like who is this what is happening (laughs) I just think she's the coolest yeah I'm just so I'm that this like intersection of like avant-garde and pop culture while I know Lady Gaga obviously made that like so mainstream I I, like live for the girls that do it in their more niche ways like Goldfrapp and Robin and Mm -hmm. FK Twigs yeah I think they're just like really doing interesting things yeah and Alison Goldfrapp in particular, I think her public persona, when she releases an album, that the whole album campaign always has a very particular flavor. Totally. And there's obviously like a really clear vision behind it. And it's so many times over the top, really like these 
just colorful uh, displays Mm -hmm. and it matches perfectly the music and her music has kind of changed and gone from sort of electropop to folky stuff. She's definitely more organic now, yeah, for sure. But then between albums, it's like she just goes off in the countryside and is like disappears. The dream. Um, what? That's the dream. Right. People are like, what's what's success for you as a musician? I'm like, success is that you can go make an album People care, and then you go away and can make another album, and people still care. Right. That's no one gets to do that. There's like five artists that can. I can think of like Adele, Lana Del Rey. Like I can't think of many like female pop artists that can literally disappear between cycles and come back. Yeah. That's like she was the fact that she's been able to do that. I think Saint Vincent can do that. Like mm-hmm. because their fan bases are so obsessed with them and, and respect them so much. Yeah. Um, Robin. Mm-hmm. Went away for eight years, came back. Yeah. And these are people who are, their work is so iconic. And totally. For many of them, I mean, I don't know about Adele having radical aesthetics there, but. Um, no, she's not. She's know. just an yeah. example of like, literally, I think Adele could go away for a decade. Right, right, right. And, and come like, back. The music and every, kind of speaks for people, itself. Yeah, she's, she's obviously not. She's a big pop diva, but like, yeah. just in um, that sense. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, all of those artists being able to, the way that their work impacts people that it doesn't the impact doesn't dissipate it's it's always present and so even if they're not releasing music if they kind of go off and you know totally have a sheep farm or whatever it is that Alison Goldfrapp is doing (laughs) um that they can come back everybody's ready and you know welcoming them with open arms well and and I think even more interesting is that in their absence their fan base has grown Mm-hmm. which is like so crazy. Like Goldfrapp is a reference point. I talk about this a lot. My references for who I am as an artist don't feel like they've been, I don't feel like I have new references of icons in that space yet. I don't feel like I have a new reference for a Robin now. Right. I, I couldn't tell you who like the 2019 version of Robin is, you mm-hmm. know? And maybe that's just because those kinds of artists come once. But I, you know, I also think maybe it's like a, what's the right way to describe it? It it might be a reflection of how the music industry is different or whatever. Mm. But like, I don't like me, like, again, I use the only people I have are like maybe FK Twigs, Christine and the Queens. Mm -hmm. You know, those are sort of when I think of like a more contemporary version of what, obviously they're not what Goldfrapp did, but they're the, they're pushing different boundaries because 2019 has different boundaries to push than 2000. But just the way that I, that she has like a couple iconic Glastonbury performances and like nobody was using Glastonbury quite like that before. She was really using them to create like artistic live performances that were going on television and being broadcast to the entire country. Right. She's still touring. She's going on tour, actually, I think this year or Felt, next year. Felt Mountain 20th anniversary tour. So it's like, and, and the use of, I just, I remember hearing all those synths for the first time whenever I was in my like late teens. And I it just like, I was like, God, this is, it's like visceral. I just mm-hmm. felt like I had never heard electronic music feel visceral. That yeah. was such a cool thing. And she's like using blues riffs and, yeah. and, uh, grooves. It's just so cool. It's such an amazing mix of organic and electronic instrumentation. So yeah, I just think she's an icon. I think she's amazing. Yeah. And she, I, she was here a few years ago at Brooklyn Steel and I saw her and she, she's got a bit of a reputation for being kind of aloof, uh, a bit frosty. I can imagine. She was like so overwhelmed like clearly emotional with seeing the response that people had given her Mm -hmm. and was so appreciative and it was an amazing amazing show and she sounded incredible but just yeah i I think she has a a real 
appreciation for her the loyalty of her fans too oh yeah i'm um, sure i'm sure she's gone away and come back like so many times yeah. and the fact that people are there ready for her to like put out new music i mean i can't imagine having her, her career has been what a decade at this point yeah. more yeah yeah it's amazing and she i mean i think i mentioned to this to you when we were chatting about doing this you know she put out what was the first record is it cherry the cherry uh, one felt mountain oh yes yeah. yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. the first one mm-hmm. she was 36 when that mm. came out yeah yeah that's amazing like when you think of like synth pop girls like people write you off people Mm -hmm. like and not only was she not only was she making this kind of music she was in a whole world of her own like it was a whole new thing and she literally was the equivalent of giving zero fucks right it was which i think is i think for me as a woman creating music at any age that's inspiring to sort of say it does not matter age is literally a construct you can do whatever you want she was technically at an age that the music industry deems like a non-negotiable over the hill. Mm-hmm. Not only was she doing it, she was like defining what cool was. Right. She was the coolest. Yeah. So and, I, uh, yeah. And then redefining it with every album. Every, the know, one like, where I can't remember the name is the one where she's like the jester on the cover. She has all those photos in the fields. Have you seen those press covers of her? Uh, it's a, she's wearing like a black and white outfit. Yeah. I don't know the I name know of the album, but I can see her image. She's like white. She's like white painted on her face. And the whole, there was like a whole sort of carnival aesthetic in a lot of the visuals. And like, even that, like it, it has a Kate Bush feel to it. It was just the same cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And I think that it's a, uh, for me, that's such an inspiring part of it. Her artistry is inspiring, but her story is also very inspiring to me as a musician. Yeah. I can imagine people listening to this podcast screaming what that uh, <laughs> image is from. You're like, like, guys! Yeah. I read a tweet the other day. Somebody said that the closest you will ever get to being a ghost is listening to a podcast where the podcasters are talking about some trivia and can't remember what it is oh and God, you yeah, know the answer. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. That's so uh, funny. That's so funny. I read a, um, I saw that, a, this is really off topic. I digress for one second, but <laughs> this comedian that I follow that I love does a podcast for Hinge where they, speaking of ghost, but ghosting, <laughs> where they find two people that have dated or whatever and one person ghosted the other person. And they have them sit down and talk, which is like peak. Like, that's like, I'm like, oh my God, this is so interesting. It's fucked up, but so interesting. And I listened and the whole time I was like yelling at the podcast being like, girl, what are you doing? Why are you saying that? Oh my God. Hinge, more like cringe. Am I right? God. Yeah, that sounds like peak podcasting where we get to put people (laughs) in uncomfortable situations and record it. That sounds like the kind of thing that would give me a stomachache to listen to. I mean, I wouldn't go on it. (laughs) It, it, I I was like actively speaking to the people though. I was like, okay, I can't listen to more of these. It's just like giving me a stomachache. Yeah, amazing. (laughs) Um, Anyway, back to Goldfrap. Yeah, Yeah. so I think that she's, I think that she's just like, to me, she's timeless. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, I feel enormously satisfied. Um, and Hmm. I think you've done a great job. You have such a soothing podcast voice. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's, um, thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah. Thank you for chatting with me. Um, so if anybody who is listening to this doesn't know how <laughs> to find out uh, what you're up to next, I should hope they already do. But uh, is are the socials the best All way? All the socials. So, okay. So I my project's called Ariana and the Rose. And you can Google that and then all the things come up if you want to be one like a one-step process. Also, I have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. 
I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple. I am a social media whore. You can find <laughs> me on all the places. Uh, Ariana 1N, yeah. like Grande, but different. And the Rose. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks. It was so fun. Yeah. Bye. Bye. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but that was spectacular. Thanks again to Ariana. Download and stream her music, because it's amazing. Check out her live shows if you're lucky enough to live in a city where she's performing, because they're amazing too. Okay, let's wrap stuff up with a couple of recommendations. First, Birds of Prey dudes, it's really good. You'd be forgiven for thinking it's going to suck because A, Suicide Squad sucked ass. And B, the trailer for Birds of Prey looked pretty terrible. But it's great. It's funny and violent and exciting and the action sequences kick ass. I was so pleasantly surprised. So go see it. Not only because you'll like it, but because it's not doing very well at the box office and we all need to support good films led and directed by women if we want to see more of that shit. Hollywood is slowly changing, sort of, but it's still dumb enough to think that the failure of one blockbuster led by women will mean that all blockbusters led by women will fail. So go see it. I also saw a horror movie called The Lodge, which was pretty good. I'm recommending it because the first hour is phenomenal and creepy as fuck. The second half is a bit more traditional, but I still enjoyed it. So overall, I'll leave it at pretty good. Riley Keough stars in it as well, and I love her so much. So that's another point in its favor. And that, as they say, is that. Follow me on social media if you haven't already, at Spark Parade. Rate and review the show wherever you stream or download. And then just chill out with a beverage of your choice and relax for a while. I don't want you to feel like you've worked too hard. All right, friends, that's it. Have a fun week. Until next time, bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.